listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hi, Anatole. Hello. How are you doing? I'm fine. Good. Let me introduce you. I'm Robert Wright, publisher of Non-Zero Newsletter. This is the Non-Zero Podcast. You are Anatole Levin. Uh, the director of, I think, what, Eurasian Studies at the Quincy Institute, the Re- Eurasia Program. Of the Eurasia Program. Yes, director of the uh, Eurasia Program. At the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Uh, you also write for The Guardian, and uh, and you've written a lot of books. In fact, you know, a recent uh, podcast guest was praising your book. Sadly, uh, she did this after we quit recording, sadly for you, but uh, a book you'd written on Chechnya some time ago that she found very illuminating. You've written a lot of other Thank books, you. ethical realism and so on. Uh, and um, we are going to talk mainly today about Ukraine, about the war, the political context, the prospects uh, for it ending at some point. Uh, there's other news today uh, in the former Soviet Union, which I'm sure hasn't escaped your attention, which is... Uh, the possibility that war is breaking out between Azerbaijan and Armenia. I want to, I want to, I want to uh, get to that a little later. Um, unless you have something you want to say about it right now. I mean, apparently, uh, you know, there's this disputed territory kind of enveloped by Azerbaijan. It's ethnically Armenian, and Azerbaijan is attacking it. I gather today. Is that your sense? Yes. And. Th- how bad could that get? Well, uh, I mean, for, for the Armenians of Nagorno-Karabakh, I think it's probably game over. Um, they, so they're, they're going to be, you mean, subjugated or ethnically cleansed or both? Um, uh, in effect, ethnically cleansed. I mean, what may well happen is uh, uh, an agreement um brokered by the Russians, whereby they will be given the chance to leave um, if they wish to. And I'm sure that the overwhelming majority will leave uh, for Armenia because their, their, their position under Azeri rule would be intolerable. Hmm. And this is territory that is, um, do most nations recognize it as part of Azerbaijan, although it hasn't been under their effective control? Is that it? The, the, yes, I mean, the entire um, international community, including Russia, uh, recognizes it as um, as legally part of, of Azerbaijan. Uh, but negotiations have been going on for 30 years now um, about uh, how uh, it could be reincorporated into Azerbaijan uh, while, uh, you know, providing real security for the um, Armenian majority population. Um, but that uh, required um, th- them to have their own armed forces, uh, and that the Azeris were never prepared to agree to. It should be said, by the way, that the you know the, these issues are always multi-layered, um, <clears throat> just as uh, Albanian, the rule of the Albanian uh, majority in um, in Nagorno-Karabakh saved the Albanians from Serbian oppression, mm-hmm. but of course was uh, ruin for the remaining 
Serbian minority in uh, Kosovo. Um, so uh, the uh, the Azeris of Nagorno-Karabakh, the Azeri minority there, uh, were in effect ethnically cleansed or fled from the Armenians uh, when the Armenians won the war in the early 1990s. So now they are returning and the Armenians are leaving. Mm -hmm. And you don't think Armenia will, uh, you don't think this will turn into a larger war? I mean, for one thing, Armenia, uh, I guess, wouldn't, might not stand a chance. Um, or, or what? Well, I mean, the, the, whole, um, the, the whole point of what's happening is that uh, in the past, Russia stood behind Armenia. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, in effect, though Russia never guaranteed Nagorno-Karabakh, but when the, the Azeris launched a successful offensive uh, in 2020, uh, Russia stepped in to broker a ceasefire to preserve basically what was left of Armenian Nagorno-Karabakh mm -hmm. um, and provided peacekeepers to uh, protect the Armenians there. But of course, since the Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, and the tremendous losses and obviously military commitments Russia has made there, uh, Russia is simply no longer in a position to deploy military force mm -hmm. uh, to um, back up its, its peacekeepers. Uh, indeed, many of the peacekeepers have been withdrawn to serve mm -hmm. in, in Ukraine. Uh, and um, so that has, you know, given the Azeris their opportunity to finish it. So this might well not be happening were it not for the war in Ukraine. It wouldn't have happened, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, okay. So uh, let's talk about uh, Ukraine. Um, now, today, we're taping this uh, Tuesday morning, and it'll post later today. Uh, Zelensky, I think, is going to address the UN General Assembly, maybe, and, th and then he's going to head to Washington to talk to Biden. Do I have that right? That's it, yes. Um. I, I mean, broadly speaking, I think we can anticipate uh, some of his themes. Ukraine uh, needs and deserves uh, the support of the world. I assume he'll make that case uh, at the UN. Um, and I assume he'll make the case to Biden. But but I assume that more will go on behind closed doors as well. Do you have a sense for what the contours of the conversation may be between them? Well, Zelensky will obviously be uh, be asking for yet more American military aid uh, and will probably be trying to persuade the Americans that the Ukrainian offensive is is going well, uh, although this, I have to say, uh, up to now really does not seem to have been the case. I mean, the big question is, uh, will they finally start to talk seriously uh, about the possibility of ceasefire? negotiations uh, with Russia? Uh, or, uh, in effect, will this just be you know, more of the same? We'll, we'll give Ukraine more support so that Ukraine can go on attacking if it fails this year, can attack again next year. Uh, the Ukrainians in, in, over the past year have said repeatedly that they 
will not basically will not negotiate anything other than complete Russian surrender um, in Ukraine. The you know the Russia should withdraw its forces and give back all the territory that it has taken since 2014. Well, as far as Russia is concerned, that's a non-starter. No Russian government is going to uh, hand Crimea back uh, to, to Ukraine. Um, the Biden administration has been sort of split and ambiguous on this because in public, it has said that, you know, uh, peace negotiations are entirely a matter of the Ukrainians. But some Biden administration officials in private have said, well, no, we don't think that Ukraine can or possibly even should try to retake Crimea because then um, either they can't or if they can, then the Russians will very likely escalate in the direction of nuclear war. Um, uh, but no Biden administration official has come out and said, therefore, you know, we must, um, we must negotiate uh, a, a settlement. And the question is... I was going to ask, I mean, don't lose your train of thought, but do you know which Biden officials are making this case. Uh, Mark Milley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, soon to be former chairman, I guess, um, is has is more or less on record uh, since December saying that the situation on the ground is probably not going to get a lot better for Ukraine and implying that you might as well make peace. Do you know uh, within the administration uh, who else might be on that wavelength? Is Jake Sullivan the most likely candidate or what? Uh, no, I mean, from what I've heard, and it would be in tune with his record, uh, but I, of course, cannot confirm this, uh, is that it is um, William Burns at CIA. Oh, yeah, that makes um, sense. Because he was ambassador to Moscow in his memoirs. He, well, the, the memo has been released in which he warned the then Bush administration against expanding NATO to Ukraine. Mm -hmm. um, and I think he has a, a, a much deeper understanding of, um, you know, where Russian red lines run uh, in Ukraine and, you know, just how far Russia would be prepared to go in the last resort. Uh, but as I say, I mean, the point is that expressing private doubts in the end will not be enough. Uh, somebody will have to come out and actually say, um, this isn't going anywhere. It's it's time to to negotiate. But the problem is that both the uh, Ukrainian administration, but also to a considerable extent the Biden administration in, in public, have um, you know as so often happens. I have much more sympathy with the Ukrainians, of course, but have um, have talked themselves into a corner on this, from which it will be very difficult to extricate themselves. By saying you mean that it's up to the Ukrainian people and will exert no influence whatsoever? Uh, well, yes, and and also by saying you know again and again that Ukrainian territory territorial integrity is um, non negotiable, and uh, you know calling for the complete withdrawal of the Russians and saying that you know Putin could end the war tomorrow by. Uh, simply withdrawing from Ukraine, uh, which, by the way, is, is obviously true, but it's not going to happen. Um, and that is not a basis on which one can negotiate. Now, I mean, that said, uh, what I think we probably will end up uh, um, 
with sooner or later, unless we all, of course, end up dead in a nuclear war, is not a formal peace settlement, uh, but uh, a ceasefire. Uh, and then, you know, a little bit like Cyprus or Kashmir, um, you will have a ceasefire, and then you will have, you know, endless negotiations, which probably will never go anywhere, but which uh, will, in, in effect, leave the status quo in place. And the question is, I mean, along what precise lines will the, you know, will the ceasefire line be drawn? It, it seems to me that that is really what they are fighting about now in, in, in Ukraine. It's not, uh, I find it very hard indeed to believe that either Ukraine or Russia can win a complete victory. Um, uh, unless there is a, a total collapse on one side or the other, uh, or, or, of course, uh, the Western support for Ukraine collapses as a, as a result of next year's US presidential elections. Um, that being so, we are looking at, you know, as we've seen in other parts of the world, a um, probably in the end, a, a de facto territorial compromise, but, but not, a, not a formal compromise because you, you, just as Russia can, no mm -hmm. Russian government can agree to give up Crimea, so no Ukrainian government uh, can ever, I think, officially recognize the loss of Ukrainian territory. Uh, do you think that's true even if they were guaranteed, if the newly configured Ukraine were guaranteed admission to NATO? Possibly, but it's a kind of catch-22 situation because they would basically have to be quite clearly formally offered right. NATO membership first. Um, and uh, uh, until you know, the war is settled, you'll have many NATO countries which will say, um, and not just a ceasefire, you understand, but actually legally settled. There will be many NATO countries which will say, look, sorry, we can't make that kind of commitment. Because after all, you know, Cyprus uh, is a case where the ever since 1974, the, the ceasefire has held, basically because the Turks got everything they wanted and then stopped. Uh, and are in an overwhelmingly superior military position. But of course, uh, in Kashmir and in, you know, there was a ceasefire from 2015 to 2022 in the eastern Donbass, uh, but it was repeatedly violated. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, a, I, I suspect that, a, you know, a ceasefire will not be, uh, be enough. The Ukrainians would actually have to agree to a... Um, a peace settlement with Russia to get into NATO. And at least as things stand now, that will be quite exceptionally difficult mm -hmm. for a, a Ukrainian government to do, uh, unless, of course, they can claim that they were, you know, simply that they had no choice, that, that the, right. the West forced them to do this. Well, so that, that is perhaps a, a possibility, yes. Yeah, I wrote a piece for the Washington Post in December, uh, uh, probably shortly after Milley started talking about this, saying that uh, Biden would be doing Zelensky a favor by, you know, kind of playing the bad cop. And uh, and so that Zelensky could say, well, 
America's pressuring us. They control the arms flow. We have no choice. Um, that, that aside, uh, th those politics aside, although I do want to get back to Ukrainian politics, I assume that even if you assume that a ceasefire could be effective for the time being, Ukraine's fear would still be that Russia will build up force and eventually start trying to take more Ukrainian territory. Meanwhile, the political situation in the West will have changed. And so Ukraine will be out of luck, right? I mean, so so in other words, Ukraine, if they're going to accept a formal settlement, they're going to demand some kind of security guarantees, ideally from their point of view, uh, membership in NATO, and you outlined the problems with that. Uh, but they're also going to require some kind of security guarantee. I don't know how formal if they're going to even accept a ceasefire, right? Security guarantee from the West, some some credible form of commitment from the West. Well, yes, but I mean, <laughs> short of NATO membership or even actually including NATO membership, uh, it's very difficult to see, you know, what that w will actually be. Um, because, you know, once again, uh, yeah. America and the West did not save um, Cyprus from Turkish invasion. Uh, mm -hmm. And despite, uh, as we can see today in Nagorno-Karabakh, despite um, uh, endless statements, um, uh, the, the, the West is not going to do anything concrete to save the Armenian population of Nagorno-Karabakh. I mean, the thing is that, you know, when it's a question of sending your own troops, especially, I mean, sending your own troops and risking nuclear war, um, commitments may not count mm -hmm. for very much. Um, mm -hmm. And especially, of course, if America, God forbid, gets into a position where it is really facing war with China in East Asia, um, then it will be largely up to the Europeans to come to Ukraine's defense. Well, the Poles, maybe, yes. Uh, but I mean, anyone who thinks that the Germans and the Dutch are going to go and fight in Ukraine, <laughs> you know, really hasn't um, looked at their record in recent years. Hmm. So uh, it may not have escaped your attention that uh, kind of the logical implication of your analysis is almost complete hopelessness so far as uh, bringing the war to an end anytime soon. Well, depends what you mean by soon. Um, I mean, this year I find it doubtful. Um, but, you know, in the end, uh, if you, you know, Ukraine has suffered such terrible casualties already, it cannot go on attacking and attacking without success. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I mean, already you, you see massive evasion of military service in, in Ukraine, as well as in Russia. And on the Russian side, well, you know, their best chance of, of a greater victory is, of course, precisely for the Ukrainians to exhaust themselves and then for Russia to, to counterattack. But I think, I mean, almost like in in the First World War, uh, what we've really seen in this war is the degree to which shifts in military technology for the moment really favor the defensive. Um, and so if Russia goes again onto the defensive, the offensive, then um, perhaps yeah. it will 
suffer the same fate as the Ukrainians. And eventually, uh, I mean, unless they're prepared to fight, I mean, a hundred years war, um, uh, both sides will eventually decide that, you know, further losses are not going to bring them any further serious gain. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I suppose, I mean, just, it's a question of time, but it's a, also a question of just how many people will have to die yeah. before this, they come to this realization. This this uh, question of whether the technology uh, has rendered offense problematic uh, really occurred to me for the first time in the wake of this uh, kind of supposed breakthrough in the South. I mean, as you know, uh, Ukraine did succeed in uh, inserting some of its troops in the Russian uh, tren- trenches that are part of the first big defensive line, but it doesn't seem to have gotten any armor across uh, the part of the line that is designed to stop armor. And and I just, uh, and, and so that's, it's been two or three weeks since what was reported as as some kind of uh, breakthrough the line happened, and there has not been much in the way of further advance. And it just occurred to me that, like, you know, the old conception of a breakthrough is like, okay, there's this big gap you've got. Now you can pour your armor through, just is less plausible when one of the main problems your armor faces is drones, not like other tanks, right? Mm-hmm. And and that is, are the drones the main uh, the main thing that you think have rendered uh, offense more problematic than it used to be? There, there are there are many factors. Drones are one. Mines are another. You know, I was in Ukraine in, in March. I talked to a, a, a lot of soldiers, uh, talked to a lot of soldiers missing legs um, as a result of mines. Um, and they all talked about, the, the, they were talking then about the fighting around Bakhmut, but they all talked about the way in which, you know, mines were, were really, really slowing up movement mm-hmm. on both sides. And then um, uh, satellites uh, have played a, a role somewhat you know, reminiscent of the First World War. In the First World War, to break through trench lines, you had to concentrate troops in such large numbers that for weeks in advance, uh, the other side could know exactly where you were going to attack Mm -hmm. uh, and could deploy its forces in in response. Well, today, of course, satellite technology uh, gives that uh, ability and satellite technology, uh, particularly on the Ukrainian side, of course, um, but now also on the Russian, has has been you know, critical basically to identifying where the enemy is concentrating uh, and um, you know, deploying your, your forces uh, in defense. And then, uh, of course, there is also the fact that uh, the tank uh, was obviously the great breakthrough weapon. Um, the tanks then, you know, backed since 1940 by ground attack aircraft. Well, the the spread of small-scale missiles, uh, anti-aircraft missiles, anti-tank missiles, uh, you know, to the soldiers on the ground, have been, well, just absolutely mm-hmm. deadly, of course, mm-hmm. for so many uh, tanks and, and ground attack aircraft. Uh, they have, to a considerable extent, not completely nullified Russia's huge air superiority. Uh, and um, on the Russian side, they have now you know, played a, a key part, along with drones, in, um, in nullifying 
you know, all these uh, latest um, tanks that the West has provided to Ukraine. Yeah. Now, uh, so we uh, there may well be something approaching a stalemate in the long run. You know, Zelensky can do the math, right? He knows that so long as Russia remains committed to the war, they have a lot more manpower and Ukraine's going to run out of soldiers before Russia does, uh, assuming there is commitment on the Russian side and at the popular level to some extent and so on. Um, I guess, uh, where do you think his hopes lie? It must be starting to occur to them that they are not going to chase uh, all of Russia's troops out of Ukraine, barring some dramatic developments such as uh, the war somehow drawing NATO in. And I'm sure he wouldn't mind that. Um, or, you know, you hear talk of some kind of regime collapse in Russia. Uh, that's a real wild card, but it's, it's far from obvious that that would lead to a weakened Russian uh, war effort, depending on the successor regime. W where do you think... Uh, I mean, to the extent that they're thinking long term in Kiev, what do you think they're hoping for? Well, you know, I mean, in a war, uh, people often clutch desperately at straws um, mm -hmm. and don't think very clearly uh, about, um, you know, realities or the longer future. And... I mean, that is also understandable because, of course, as so often been said, including by Napoleon, that, you know, war is to a considerable extent a question of national will. And therefore, you know, if you are absolutely determined to fight on indefinitely, you know, whatever happens, well, maybe in the end you will win if the other mm -hmm. side is not prepared to fight on. You know, mm -hmm. indefinitely. But of course, there is a very fine line between that kind of determination uh, and um, stupidity. Oh, not stupidity exactly, but obstinacy. Um, mm -hmm. You know, just a refusal to, 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 to recognize reality. Um, and also, uh, of course, uh, there is the question of where whether Zelensky believes his own, you, you know, intelligence reports and um, let alone public statements, because, you know, as we've seen again and again, you know, including in the, in, in the First World War, but in Vietnam, uh, armies basically lie. Now, they may well be lying to themselves as well, mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, the Ukrainian forces, uh, as do the Russians, by the way, you know, keep putting putting out figures for Russian casualties, which, which are totally unbelievable. Right. You know, fantasies. Uh, I hope that Zelensky doesn't believe these fantasies, because in a, in a war of attrition, uh, well, the, the 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 greatest Ukrainian hope of attrition against Russia was economic attrition by the West. Mm -hmm. You know that this that economic isolation and sanctions would bring down the Russian economy. Well, that has failed, um, in part, of course, because the, by far the greater part of the world outside the West won't go along with it. So Russia is not, in fact, isolated. Um, but on the battlefield, in terms simply of um, munitions and guns in, you know, in, in a First World War style uh, 
struggle of this kind. Um, you know, on the whole, attrition would seem to favour uh, the Russians because you know you, the high-tech Western weapons were tremendously useful in stopping the Russian advance. Um, uh, last year, but uh, you know, in, in a battle of trench warfare, it is to a considerable extent simply a question of uh, how, well, a how many shells you have, mm-hmm. but secondly, how many conscript soldiers you can generate. I mean, that's one of the fascinating things about this war. I mean, like perhaps all wars to a degree, but certainly modern wars. Um, it, it is that you know, on the one hand, you find. The, uh, I mean, to, to some extent, a real vindication of the revolution in military affairs and the tremendous importance of satellite technology, computer technology, drones, you know, all these other things. But on the other hand, you know, we could be in 1917. It is also simply critical uh, to have thousands and thousands of artillery pieces, millions and millions of shells, and hundreds of thousands of conscript soldiers. Yeah. I mean, I, I suppose you can imagine some kind of uh, technological breakthrough in the sense of like the U.S. right now secretly working on just very cheap drones that are kind of newly effective or something like that. But I mean, barring and look, Russia, if any, has been at least as impressive in the West, I guess, as the West in uh, marshalling, um, you know, kind of drone uh, drone armament. So who knows? But um, in in terms of uh, but but certainly barring that, yeah, it just seems like a long, hard slog that goes nowhere in particular, and that probably um, favors Russia in the long run. Um, I want to uh, let, let's let's get a little more into the the psychology and politics at play on both sides. I, I wanted to ask you. You said you spoke to a number of Ukrainian soldiers, uh, a number of them amputees. Uh, I, I'm wondering what since you got from them in terms of the ongoing level of commitment in Ukraine and anything else they said that's of interest. I want to first ask, like, when you go there, how are these people selected? Are they like, does Ukraine choose the soldiers you get to talk to? Or do you have a sense that these are representative? Well, in my case, no. Uh, I mean, no, Ukraine didn't choose them. Uh, no, I mean, the point is, uh, I didn't go to the front line um, precisely because for that you need official permission. And then, of course, uh-huh. you are uh, followed. You know, you, you are embedded with a unit they choose and they keep an eye on you. No, right. I mean, I, I just I um, uh, found veterans, you know, to talk to in Kiev. Uh, I visited uh, a hospital um, in uh, four amputees. Uh, a clinic that was fitting them with artificial legs um, in the city of Dnipro. Um, but then I ended up in hospital myself in Zaporizhia as a result of an accident. Um, and there were, um, you know, wounded soldiers there as well. Mm. So this was, uh, well, uh, I mean, it was <laughs> it was selected in t- uh, sim- simply because the great majority of the soldiers I talked to um, uh, had been wounded, uh, but it wasn't selected by right. the... Okay. And what was the what was the sense you got from them? Well, they all expressed, um, you know, determination to go on fighting. They said that uh, you know you, you, that Ukraine, yes, must um, you know go on fighting till it uh, recovers all its lost territories. Um, 
But of course, one never knows. They are probably going to say that to a to a Western journalist. Mm -hmm. uh, some of them undoubtedly were no question of, of absolute deep commitment, even ones who had been very seriously wounded, um, especially among the officers. Uh, others, well, I mean, you know, any 19-year-old kid who's had a leg blown off is not going to look cheerful. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, some of them, of course, looked terribly sad and, and depressed. Uh, and I gather just walking around like Kiev or something, you just see an unusual number of people without arms or legs. Is that true? Yes. I mean, not this isn't yet on, you know, the, the, the scale of, um, you know, what I saw in Afghanistan, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, partly because medical services, obviously, in Ukraine are much better. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, undoubtedly a, a very large number of of. Um, severely wounded people. And is your sense that the main political constraint operating on Z Zelensky, let, let's assume that he did believe that there was wisdom in bringing this war to a fairly near-term uh, ceasefire, would the main constraint uh, preventing him from pursuing that be uh, just popular pressure? I mean, both kind of grassroots support for the war and elite support for the war. I mean, of course, it's been encouraged, I understand, by kind of, you know, a fairly, a somewhat government-controlled media, th this attitude that he, uh, uh, of uh, un pretty unstinting support for the complete expulsion of Russians from the Ukraine, but I, but, but I also, from Ukraine, but I also think, I also gather there's, a, there's just a lot of heartfelt support for the war, both the grassroots and elite level. Is, is, is that the main thing that would be, uh, holding him back in this scenario or is there something are there are there other political forces at work uh, well i mean undoubtedly it's it's popular sentiment mm -hmm. uh, but of course i mean in particular it is military sentiment um and uh also the um uh the feelings of, of the ultra the extreme nationalist military groups like Azov, who have grown colossally in terms of power and influence as a result. During the war? As a result of the war? Well, yes, because they have fought very, very bravely. And in particular, I mean, Azov's tremendously courageous and stoical defense of Mariupol, you know, gained them great respect. Mm -hmm. um, wars do that. Uh, that, however, uh, does not mean that it transformed them into, uh, you know, liberal, democratic, pluralist political actors. Um, and, you, you know, some senior Ukrainian officials themselves have said on the record that if uh, Zelensky um, tries to negotiate even a, a ceasefire with Russia without regaining all Ukraine's lost territory, in, in the words of one of them, he will have signed his, his political death warrant. Mm -hmm. uh, also, I have to say, every Ukrainian analyst and journalist I talked to said that uh, they expected the Ukrainian military commander, General Zaluzhny, to run for president in future. Uh, either in succession to Zelensky or against Zelensky, if 
the circumstances seem right. Of course, for now, they've postponed all elections uh, on grounds that martial law applies so long as the war goes on, right? Well, yes. And of course, the interesting question there is, um, what do you mean by how long the war goes on? Mm -hmm. uh, until a ceasefire or until a final peace settlement? If it's until a final peace settlement, they, there may never be elections in Ukraine again. Mm. Um, so then on the Russian side, uh, uh, you wrote a piece in The Guardian a couple of weeks ago, started out talking about Prigozhin uh, and his demise, wound up getting into kind of the political forces impinging on Putin so far as uh, his attitude toward continuing the war or being willing to uh, do a ceasefire are, are concerned. And uh, I, I took away from that that, yeah, he might well be ready for a ceasefire, but but maybe you can um, tell me if I got that wrong. My my sense was that you were you were saying that yes, he he faces uh you know uh you know pressure from the nationalist right to continue the war until they've conquered more of Ukraine, but the nationalist right is somewhat under control. Actually, has been weakened uh, by the the killing of Prigozhin, perhaps uh, something that they're not entirely happy about. Also, perhaps. Um, but that, uh, you know, most people, that you felt that Putin could sell to most Russians and, and many Russian elites the idea that if the war stops now, this is victory for Russia. Do I, do I have that about right? Well, that is certainly what a majority of my informants told me, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, that uh, if Putin, you know, for example, accepted a peace proposal from Brazil or, you know, India or whoever uh, saying, um, uh, you know, ceasefire and negotiations without preconditions along the present battle lines, that he would, that, that a large majority of the Russian population would accept this. And, you know, with, of course, uh, the state propaganda and television all coming out in support of this, that, that this would be presented as enough of a victory mm -hmm. if Putin was willing to do this. Now, of course, there would be ultra-nationalists and people within the army who would be bitterly unhappy with this. Uh, because I mean, if you read what they've been saying, you know they are still they they still basically want to conquer, if not all of Ukraine, then certainly you know most of Ukraine. They are still mm -hmm. out for uh, for a much much greater victory. Um, and now the thing is, though, that to achieve that, they are also saying that we you know that Russia must launch total mobilization. I mean, back to 1942, um, conscript millions of men, um, nationalize the whole of industry and convert it into war industries. Well, so far, Putin has not been willing to do that. I mean, he's, you know, he has proceeded very cautiously and no doubt because uh, he, he thinks that that um, would be very unpopular then with much of the Russian population. Um, you know, if actually uh, a large majority of Russians saw their own relatives being sent off to fight and die. And of course, it would 
completely undermine the regime uh, among the economic elites if they actually saw their businesses not just being you know told to return to Russia and invest in the war effort, but actually saw their businesses being seized by the state. Mm-hmm. Um, so he has you know acted to to, to limit the influence of the um, of the hardliners. But what of course we don't know, it's pure speculation. And by the way, I mean none of my Russian informants claim to know either, is exactly what's in Putin's own mind. Mm-hmm. And you know the answer may perhaps be that he doesn't know himself after all. I mean, the point is, just at the moment, um, the, the, it's clear that the, the, the Western Ukraine would reject a ceasefire proposal along these lines. So right. you know, in, in, in a way, what, what's the point of Putin you know, risking the fury of his own extreme right uh, by making a proposal that will be rejected out of hand Oh, sure. No, I, I assume it would take the, the very active intervention of the U.S. to uh, get this to a point where it'd be politically feasible for either side, in a way, um, to 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 take a step. Of course, you know, China could exert pressure and so on. A lot of things could happen. But um, uh, uh, did, did you see this uh, kind of odd new, what apparently is a new military recruiting ad? We should say Russia claims that even without mobilization, It's having great success with old fashioned recruiting. You know, a couple hundred thousand people have come online or something. Soldiers, two, three hundred thousand. Did you did you see this uh, this thing that I saw for the first time yesterday? It's a apparently a military recruiting ad where two Russian soldiers are in a trench and one of them is looking forward to going uh, to live in Kiev, where I think one of his relatives lives after the war and they take Kiev. And the other one says. Well, I like the ocean, so I think I'm going to live in Odessa. Now, um, you you, uh, did, you you saw this? I, I didn't see it, but um, uh, I, I was just smiling because I remember a German cartoon from the winter of 1914-15 um, uh, in which you have German uh, soldiers in a trench um, from Simplicissimus, the magazine, and uh, one of them's playing the guitar and the other are, are singing, and they sing the, the, something to the, along the lines of, yes, the wind is cold, uh, but next year the wind will blow us to Paris. Right. Um, well, it didn't. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, and 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 I, I wouldn't uh, necessarily hold out ho- hopes if I were Russian for uh, early major progress, but I thought it was interesting. I mean, if you haven't seen the ad, it it uh, uh, maybe you can't comment, but like what it says that the government is now uh, raising these kinds of expectations. Now it could well be that the ad was just put out by the defense ministry and Putin didn't sign off on it. Who knows? But it I thought it was the kind of raising of the stakes uh, in a subtle way. Yes, I mean perhaps uh, you know, uh, but. War propaganda is rather like that. Mm-hmm. You know, people get carried away. Um, whether it really reflects Putin's hopes, we, we we just don't know. I mean, I'm sure that Putin still hopes that um, uh, Russia can take more territory. Uh, you know, no doubt he hopes that indeed the Ukrainians will go on and on attacking until they wear themselves out and then Russia can counterattack. Um, but what we don't know is how much more will be enough. Um, 
back last year, a, a good many uh, Russian analysts said to me that if, you know, they thought that if, if Russia could conquer the whole of the Donbass, uh, or the, the provinces that Russia has claimed to annex, but has in fact only partially occupied, that that would be enough to declare victory and call mm-hmm. for a ceasefire. Um, but of course, Russia has not, has not managed to do that. Um, and it would take, you know, tremendous efforts by Russia, uh, remembering that, you know, Russia tried and tried and tried for months just to capture this very small town of Bakhmut in the west right. of Donbass. Uh, even to achieve that would take a huge military effort. But I think it is possible that if Russia could take that much, then, you know, Putin with much greater credibility could claim victory and offer a ceasefire. But who knows? Yeah, I mean, especially since uh, they have, although they haven't taken all of the Donbass, they have taken land uh, beyond the Donbass in the south that is arguably uh, much more important strategically because it creates the much-discussed land bridge to Crimea, which I assume Russia feels the need for more than ever now that its bridge to Crimea has gotten blown up a couple of times. Um, the uh, Go ahead. Well, well, that's it, because... You know, since obviously we sympathize with the Ukrainians, you know, when we talk about the future, um, you know, we we talk about security guarantees for, for Ukraine and how could these be guaranteed under a ceasefire. But of course, from the Russian point of view, uh, they need security guarantees for Crimea. Um, and, you know, unless they get a, a cast iron peace settlement, guaranteed by the United States, leaving Crimea in their hands. Uh, I mean, apart from all the, you know, the, the political issues involved, militarily speaking, they can't leave southern Zaporizhia. Uh, and uh, uh, because it's, yeah, I mean, it, it is their vital link to Crimea. And without it, uh, Crimea would be uh, utterly vulnerable to a, you know, a new attack by Ukraine. Yeah. Uh, this this doesn't, you know, saying this, you know, I'm in, in part uh, uh, a military historian, um, you know, because having covered several wars as a journalist, I became interested in reading about the military history. And I mean, I, I think, you know, if, if you read British accounts of the First and Second World Wars um, and, you know, the, the actual progress of fighting on the battlefield. Um, it, it's not that they, that the writers sympathize with Nazi Germany. They, it's just that they, as professional military historians, they write about, you know, military and strategic realities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, uh, listen, we've been talking for uh, not quite an hour, but close to that. And one thing we tend to do on this podcast uh, these days is, uh, you know, put that much of the conversation out as a public podcast uh, and then uh, talk some more in overtime. That is available to paid subscribers of the Non-Zero newsletter, which you can become by Googling Non-Zero and uh, Substack or uh, by just clicking the link in the show notes uh, on your smartphone app. And uh, and thereafter, you can get a special podcast feed that uh, has all the bonus content 
all the bonus podcast content. And of course, you'll also have access to the bonus print content in the newsletter. And you'll be supporting uh, conversations like this if you think they're worthwhile. Uh, now, Anatole, you've been kind enough to agree to uh, to go into overtime with me. I appreciate that. Uh, because for one thing, I want to ask you about whether, um, uh, you know, like the, the Ukrainian attacks on Russia proper and on Crimea from Odessa uh, change, uh, well, the Russian uh, calculus about how much territory they feel they need or changes the level of uh, public commitment to the war in Russia. Uh, so we'll get into that and some other things. But before we go there, I want to ask if you want to say anything about where people can find your stuff. As I said, uh, you know, you're at Quincy. You write for uh, both The Guardian and Responsible Statecraft, uh, uh, Quincy's publication. Uh, what's your Twitter handle? You're st- are you still on on Twitter, as I continue to stubbornly call it? Yes, yes, I am. I'm Anatole Levin. Um, and uh, you can find... Um, uh, you know, all my pieces for the Quincy Institute are on the uh, Responsible Statecraft um, and on the Quincy site where, you know, longer papers and reports are, are yeah. posted. Um, I, 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 I do have a website of my own, but I, I desperately need to update it. Okay, well, we won't embarrass you by revealing its coordinates then before oh. you've updated it. The... Uh, Anyway, I really encourage people to check out your work. It's hard. It's hard in any war to find relatively dispassionate analysis that uh, aims to understand the perspective on uh, both sides, even though I think it's valuable for all concerned and ultimately to understand those perspectives. And you're 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 really good at it. and You have been for some time. So I encourage people to check out your work. Uh, And with that said, uh, we will head into overtime now. 